This episode of Health Gig is powered by Paragon Performance. People are yearning for information. Having the opportunity to encourage people and to educate people and inspire people. It's amazing to be able to say we'll carve out time to take care of ourselves. There's something for everyone. Dr. Mark Milstein earned both his PhD in biological chemistry and his Bachelor of Science in Molecular, Cellular, and Developmental Biology from UCLA. Dr. Milstein has conducted research on topics including genetics, cancer biology, neuroscience, and infectious disease, and his work has been published in multiple scientific journals. Dr. Milstein utilizes his scientist's training to cut through the hype and inaccurate health headlines to give all of us actionable, accurate tips that we can actually use today. We are so excited to welcome Dr. Milstein to HealthGig to talk about how we can live longer, healthier, and more productive lives. Welcome, Dr. Milstein. We're so thrilled you've joined us today. And we thought we would just start with how you got started in all of this. First of all, thank you so much for having me. I'm very happy to be here. I specialize in taking the latest science research, the latest breakthroughs. My background is as a scientist, so doing research. But what I really focus on now is taking these breakthroughs and trying to make them usable, understandable. There's so many really exciting breakthroughs happening, but how do we get them out of the lab and to people so that they can use them, implement them in their day-to-day lives so that they can protect their brain? So how do they lower the risk of dementia? How do they optimize their sleep, which is a key part of lowering risk for dementia? How do they take care of their gut, manage their stress? So putting all these pieces together from all these different areas of research into actionable steps we can take to really protect our brain. You've mentioned the brain. So let's just start with the brain. How do we keep our aging brain healthy? Well, the good news is that we now know that there's things we can do that scientifically work, that we used to think that we were essentially destined to develop certain brain conditions as we age or we were to lose our memory. But now we know that based upon some lifestyle factors that we can really protect our brain and lower risk for things like dementia, anywhere from 30 to 60%. So it's about what we're eating, our moving, our exercise, managing stress, and some key underlying conditions to be aware of, and also sleep. So Putting together those factors, we realize we have a lot more control over protecting our brain health than we really ever thought we had. Because it used to be that, yeah, we just thought that once the brain was, we were grown up, right, at whatever those ages were, there was nothing that was going to change, right? And what were those ages like? What did we think they were in the 20s, right? Well, our brain stops developing. It's actually something we're still learning about, but somewhere between our 20s and our 30s, men might be a little bit later in terms of how their brain develops a little slower. (laughs) Um, But but it turns out that, yeah, we realize that we can actually improve our brain health. We can keep learning new things throughout our lifespan, which causes us to make more connections in our brain, which protects our brain. And then also how we now understand that even if there's things in our family, you know, genetics, family history of certain conditions, Obviously, these things are very scary, but now we know that we have a lot more control over keeping our brain young, keeping it youthful, and lowering risk for these conditions. Ooh, can't wait to talk about those. You mentioned nutrition, and what are the best foods for your brain? The studies really suggest that in all the things that we're hearing about, and it's constantly a new story and a new headline, that really it keeps coming back to the Mediterranean-like diet. The simple thing, I like to always just break it down to as simple as it gets, is that If you just look at what you're eating and it has a label on it or it's packaged 
and you flip it over and it has a ton of ingredients and you can't pronounce the ingredients and it looks like a chemistry experiment gone wrong. <laughs> Those are the things we want to minimize because all these additives and preservatives that are in our food are causing things to happen in our gut. They're causing inflammation that actually leaves our gut, gets in our blood and spreads to our brain and actually can damage our brain. So really most of the time thinking about Mediterranean diets, thinking about fruits and vegetables, lean meats, fiber, things that are more like single ingredient foods, they're not heavily processed. That's where we really see the benefit to brain health. Okay, so what we know, okay, so this is really basic, but what we know is that the brain is a lot of fat, right? Like DHA, is that right? Fat. And that's where the term fathead came from. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway, is there supplements that we should be taking? I mean, what do you think about fish oil? If we're not getting enough of that in our diet, enough fish, how would you approach fish oil? And can you talk about the difference between EPA fat and DHA fat? We're seeing a lot of conflicting data when it comes to taking fish oil, even mm. in the last few weeks. And so really it keeps coming back to trying first to get healthy fats in our diet. So eating fish, that really is an important aspect of all of this. We do see that individuals that tend to eat healthy fats through fish about twice a week seem to protect their brain. And the reason that is, is that, as you mentioned, your brain has quite a bit of fat in it. And so your brain cells, which you have about 80 billion of, they're wrapped in fat. And in order for them to send signals, they have to have these healthy fats around the brain cells. It keeps them able to send signals effectively. And a lot of the food that is processed actually has a very dangerous type of fat in it. It's those are the trans fats that puts a type of fat around our brain cells that is very damaging to our brain. So really trying to focus on the food, the supplements, there might even be some negative aspects to taking these supplements. It's really something that it's individualized. It's taking a moment, having that conversation with your doctor and saying, based upon, you know, several factors, my heart health, maybe risk for stroke. Should I be taking these supplements? Should I not be taking them? Because it keeps changing our yeah, understanding of the yeah. supplements. But something that remains very consistent is the diet and that trying to get the healthy fats through eating fish like salmon, healthy fats through avocados, nuts, like walnuts. That's where we consistently see a really large benefit to brain health and to our overall health. So top five then, salmon, walnuts, and what are the other three? Avocado, we heard you uh, say. Avocado <laughs> are good healthy fats. All different types olive of oil. Good. Yeah, olive oil is really good. Making sure the olive oil is minimally processed. You want to see something on the bottle that says like fresh pressed. The more processing that happens to the olive oil, the less benefit. Those are the key ones to think about. Really keeping it simple. Thinking about the fish, the avocados, the nuts, the olive oil. Those are really good ones. One of the things that happens to us as we age is our memories. So what are some of the things we can do to boost our memory? Memory really is use it or lose it. And so in our modern world, besides doing all the things we talked about in terms of, you know, optimizing our underlying health, just making sure that we're really using our brain in new ways. It's very similar to working out in the gym. You wouldn't want to go to the gym and just do bicep curls every time. Eventually that wouldn't look so good. So the thing <laughs> is when, we're doing, when it comes to our brain, we really want to mix it up and think about that different types of learning activate different parts of your brain and you want to be really giving your brain a full brain workout so the thing is is that if you say well i really love to read that's great reading is great reading is good for your brain let's say oh, i love to do puzzles that's great but we also want to do things like sports dancing 
musical instruments, learning a foreign language. These things are activating different parts of the brain. So if you can learn one new thing a day, that's a really good goal. It doesn't have to be something major, talking about it with people, discussing it, and then thinking about, am I doing things that involved learning new physical movements? So like a sport. Am I learning maybe something that's challenging, that's out of my field of expertise? Something I don't learn about all the time, a foreign language or brain science or something that maybe I don't think about all the time. And then think about also music. It really doesn't get much better than music, either dancing to music, even listening to music, singing. These fun things are really good for the brain. Because you're saying that there's a part of the brain that needs to be activated and that's one part. So you get that going, you get this going, you get this going, then your whole brain is kind of moving along. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. So you could think of it that there's a couple things going on is that every time you learn something new, you make a connection. So your brain cells make a connection and we want to keep making these connections. It's kind of like your bank account. You want to keep putting money in because eventually things are going to be withdrawn. As we get older, we lose these connections. So the more we're putting in, we don't notice it as much that we're losing connections. And then we're making connections in specific parts of our brain based upon what we're learning or how we're learning, or is it from a book or is it more movement oriented? And so we don't want the parts that we're not using to wear out or to atrophy. And so the idea is, is that if we can think of it like a full brain workout, mm -hmm. cross training. That makes sense. Yeah, you're doing aerobics, you're going for hikes. Think about that with your brain too and make it fun. It should be things you've always wanted to learn that are fun, that are socially engaging. That's another thing we can discuss is that how important social engagement is. Just socializing, being with people, talking to them. We really see that not only is loneliness a major risk factor for dementia, but staying engaged, learning new things, it's critically important. Mm. And the loneliness is, again, because why you're just there and you're not engaging? Is that what you're saying? So it's a couple reasons, and it's become so important to discuss that we're actually seeing data that suggests that loneliness is as great of a risk factor to our health as things like obesity and smoking. And that sounds shocking to hear, but what we realize from all of this is that our mood how we're feeling, what's happening in our brain is impacting our body. So if we're lonely, if we're experiencing those feelings of loneliness, we're actually releasing chemicals into our bloodstream that cause inflammation. And that inflammation is our own immune system then attacking our body and essentially damaging it and destroying it. We also have data that shows that when we're feeling lonely, it changes how our genes are turned on and off. And it turns genes on in a way that's actually quite dangerous for us. So it's troubling to hear but it's another avenue that we can say, oh, this is something that's important and we can prioritize engagement, social interaction, reaching out to people, making phone calls, talking to people, meeting up, especially as people get older, the loneliness does increase. You know, things do happen that can make us lonely as we get older, but we want to get the word out that this is important and we want to make steps that think there's things we can do to decrease this loneliness. So you mentioned earlier about gut health. How is the gut related to dementia or Alzheimer's? Yeah. And I have a question. Could you also tell us what is Alzheimer's, what's dementia, and why do we use them interchangeably and should we use them interchangeably? Yeah, that's a really good question because they've been used interchangeably for a long time, but now we separate them out. We want to clarify that dementia is just a term for symptoms of memory loss. So there's many things that can cause dementia. There's actually 200 causes, over 200 causes of dementia. You know, somebody could have an accident. They could have a brain injury. It could be a side effect to a medication. All these things can cause dementia, the symptoms of memory loss. Alzheimer's is one specific disease that causes the symptoms of dementia. It's the most 
common disease that causes dementia. There are others, but it's the most common. So we have to talk about it. And really a important message is, is that, you know, in the past people might say, oh, this individual is showing signs of memory loss or dementia. There's nothing we could do. What's the point of looking further? You know, it's just part of aging. We want to really throw that idea away because 20% of all cases of dementia are actually quite easily treatable. So we always want to say, what's causing it? Always want to dig deeper because it would be so tragic if somebody was living with dementia and we just said, oh, there's nothing we could do. And it was caused by something we could easily treat. And even if it is determined to be Alzheimer's that's causing the dementia, just in the past year, we have all this information that we can slow down the progression. We used to say, oh, there's nothing we could do. But now we know that by optimizing the things we're talking about, social interaction, the diet, sleep, making sure someone's sleeping, underlying conditions. It's not just one thing, it's a combination of factors. And if we optimize them, we have this data that we can slow down the progression, even if it's Alzheimer's, which we couldn't say before. So short-term memory loss seems to be what happens as you age. I know with my dad, he couldn't remember if he had dinner, you know? Why is that, that we lose our short-term memory and not necessarily our long-term memory? Yeah, it's very interesting. So our short-term memory is based upon a part of our brain called the hippocampus. And imagine something that looks like a seahorse. It's a structure in the brain. Essentially what happens is that our ability to remember things that happened recently is based upon the function of that part of the brain and it becomes damaged. It's one of the parts of the brain that becomes damaged early on in many cases of dementia. But information can be stored all throughout the brain. And so what can happen is, is that things that happened 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago can still be accessed or remembered because that part of the brain is not yet damaged. But the ability to learn new things or to remember what happened recently, that part of the brain becomes damaged. Really what we see also is that, for example, we've seen this in some studies and some interesting documentaries is that individuals with dementia, you can play them a song, you know, from their childhood or from their early adulthood, a certain song, and all of a sudden memories start to flood back because that song activates parts of the brain that are still not damaged. And all of a sudden, it's almost like it's awakens some of these memories, or though in great detail, things will be discussed that happened decades before. That happens to me. I won't have remembered something for 20 years. And then all of a sudden, the memory will come back and I'll be like, whoa, I haven't thought about that. Where does your memories go? It's really interesting when you think of a person. So if you conjure up the image of somebody, you know, pick anybody right now, that person's memory is not stored in one part of your brain. So you couldn't just remove a little part of your brain. I don't know if you remember the movie Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind with Jim Carrey. He wanted to erase the memory of his ex-girlfriend. In the movie, there's this idea that, you know, you could interfere with a few brain cells and then that person's just erased. And it doesn't work that way, unfortunately, with exes. <laughs> but instead, what happens is, is that if you conjure up the image of somebody, they're stored all throughout your brain. So that the way they look is stored in one part of your brain. The way they sound is stored in a completely different part of your brain. Your emotions towards them is stored in a totally different part of your brain. And then what happens is, is that when you think of them, you amazingly pull all this information together to have a cohesive image of that person. And so what can happen is, is that if you're out walking around or you're just going about your day, something about some tiny facet of that person or that memory, which is scattered all throughout your brain, can be triggered. And then all of a sudden you remember something that you haven't thought about for, you know, 20, 30 years. Not to go too off track, but just an example that's often used is, for example, if you're afraid of going to the dentist and that causes you anxiety, you feel stressed and anxious about that. 
when you went to the dentist, well, there's the sound of the drill, there's the color of the room, all that stuff gets fragmented all throughout your brain. 10 years later, you're walking down the street by a construction site, you hear the sound of the drilling of the construction or the jackhammer. It sounds like the drill. You might never even in your mind put that together, but your brain says, oh, that sound reminds me of the sound of the dentist. And all of a sudden you have that feeling of floating anxiety or you have the, all of a sudden, oh, I think of the dentist. And so that's this idea that our brain is so complex that it fragments everything and little moments will trigger memories that we haven't thought about in years or decades. So it's based upon the fact that you don't store everything in one spot. It's all over your brain and you can easily trigger another thought. So interesting. It really is. So back to the gut. Yeah. What are ways we can improve our guts and just talk about the gut? I didn't answer that question. So I'm glad you brought that back. <laughs> so um, what we realize is that everything you eat pretty much, you know, it ends up in your gut. And then you have this bacteria down there and you have pretty much, we think as much bacteria living in your gut as you do human cells. So you have all this bacteria down there and the food that you eat, you really can't digest most of it. It's the bacteria waiting in your gut that basically breaks apart the food, releases the nutrition that then gets into your bloodstream and you can use. Now, we basically have good bacteria and bad bacteria. We have the types of bacteria that breaks apart the food in a way that releases the nutrition into our bloodstream. It actually can release things into our bloodstream that help our mood, helps us sleep, helps us feel good, might lessen anxiety. But at the same time, we have certain types of bacteria that grow in our gut that can release negative factors into our bloodstream. So things that raise our levels of stress, our anxiety, raise inflammation that can make its way to the brain and attack our brain. So we realize that what's happening in our gut, what's growing in our gut in terms of bacteria is impacting the health of our brain. They're very much connected. So gut health is brain health. Brain health is very much related to what's happening in our gut. So the key thing we want to say is, well, how do we keep our gut filled with good bacteria? How do we have beneficial bacteria down there and not the dangerous types of bacteria? And it really comes back to a main factor is what we're eating. You know, there's a lot of talk now about supplements and probiotics. The, the real evidence is the food that we eat causes different bacteria to grow. And so when we talked earlier about nutrition at the very beginning, the whole natural foods, they cause good bacteria to grow. You're feeding the good bacteria, they multiply, you get more of it in your gut. The processed food, the additives, the preservatives, the things that make the food never spoil, they cause the bad bacteria to grow. And so what we eat, determines what's growing in our gut, which determines what is then released into our bloodstream and makes its way to our brain. Really the key take home message is that gut health is related to how we're sleeping, how we're managing our stress, but the most impactful thing we can do is eat a diet that doesn't have the processed food, that doesn't have the additives and preservatives most of the time so that we can fill our gut with the beneficial bacteria, they break the food apart very efficiently, they release the nutrition, and they don't release the inflammation into our bloodstream. So the inflammation is a major factor in many health conditions and also in our brain health. It can be our own immune system essentially attacking our brain. So we want to slow down, think of that like a fire, and we want to put that fire out. And so nutrition is a key part of that. Have you heard that there's like the type three diabetes and they say that's really Alzheimer's? I mean, is that something you talk about? I guess you wouldn't read it. You would probably discover that. <laughs> no, no, that, that, so that is a new, very important insight. And so it's like another key factor that we want to get the word out about, which is that besides age, our single greatest risk factor for developing Alzheimer's is unmanaged or untreated diabetes. It raises the risk about 65%. And the reason why some scientists are calling Alzheimer's type three diabetes is that at their essence, these two conditions are very much related. They have very similar mechanisms. Alzheimer's is not just one thing that's happening. 
it's inflammation, it's the buildup of these plaques and tangles, and this essentially what we call trash that builds up in the brain, but it's also how our brain metabolizes. So diabetes is related to how we deal with sugar and how we metabolize our food, but our brain is also uses sugar. That's our brain runs on sugar. In Alzheimer's disease, that process breaks down just like it does in diabetes. So they're very similar conditions. And if diabetes is not treated, it dramatically raises the risk of Alzheimer's. Again, these things sound really scary, but we actually have data that shows that if we effectively treat diabetes, we're actually protecting the brain. And the risk factor goes from all the way up to about 65% for someone who has untreated diabetes, raising the risk for Alzheimer's, to bringing that risk all the way back down. We even have some data that people might be more protected if they effectively treat diabetes from developing Alzheimer's because they're optimizing their metabolism. We keep seeing this pattern where we see a risk factor, it's scary, but if we treat it, we bring the risk all the way back down. So people that have Alzheimer's who have been diagnosed with Alzheimer's, and if you can just briefly tell us the stages of Alzheimer's, are they diabetic? Are their blood sugars elevated? They can be. The thing about Alzheimer's is it's multiple factors. And one way that we like to think about it now is it's kind of like the old saying, the straw that breaks the camel's back. Each of these conditions, diabetes, that's like one straw. What's happening in our heart, that's another straw. What's happening in our gut, that's another straw. How we're sleeping. For people, it's different amounts of straws. And then finally, there's so much that's accumulating, then we actually see this condition developing. So what we realize, it's not diabetes in all cases, but it is prevalent. It's not always gut health, but it's prevalent in many cases. We realize it's not just one thing. But if we can optimize as many of these things we can with these lifestyle factors, we can essentially take straws off the back of, you know, ah, you know that and makes then we can sense. Lower, lower the risk back down. And that ties you back to what you were talking about with nutrition and inflammation, right? Absolutely. Yeah. All of those are diseases of inflammation. Absolutely. I think that my, my mantra that I keep thinking about is, and keep discussing is that it's all connected that each of these things is interconnected and that the good news is, is that by optimizing your sleep or doing a little more movement or thinking about just these little nutrition changes, we're not only helping our brain health, we're lowering the risk for inflammation, we're lowering the risk for diabetes. So it's really multifactorial, but the solutions seem to be the same solutions that can impact all these different conditions that are all in many ways interconnected. Let's say we try every lifestyle change in your life and you're still suffering from some kind of dementia. Are there promising medications on the market that could help? So there's been a lot of news lately about specific medication for Alzheimer's called a Duhelm. It's controversial because on one hand, we haven't had a medication approved for the treatment of Alzheimer's in almost 20 years. And so what's happening there is that there's many factors, but on one hand, what's happening is that a lot of these trials started too late in the progression of the disease, that we believe that if we could start them earlier, that might be of benefit. The other thing is that since Alzheimer's is so many factors, that where we saw a lot of progress with cancer research is with cocktail medications, more than one treatment being used to get to cancer very much is a multifactorial condition also. It's not just one thing. We believe that if we target multiple factors, that also will be of benefit. Going back to the new medication that was just approved by the FDA, it's controversial because on one hand, people, especially you know, family members, understandably, they want something. They want to have something that they can try. But usually when medications are approved, we have more data that they are effective. And this specific medication is still in a very specific phase where the FDA is saying, we're not completely sure how effective it is, 
people can try it. We have some data that it's effective. We have other data that it's not as effective. It could be based upon when we're trying it in terms of the progression of the disease. It may be it specifically helps in certain individuals and not others, but we're giving people the opportunity to try it. We're gonna be tracking this for the next several years. And if we don't see effectiveness, it may no longer be approved. So there's a lot of heated arguments on both sides of some individuals saying, and some scientists and doctors saying, well, we need something we can try. People are desperate, especially once the disease starts to progress. And on the other hand, people are saying, well, this really wasn't ready yet for approval. So there's the controversy there. On the other hand, where we're seeing a lot of hopeful insights is that diagnosis earlier. Blood tests are on the horizon where we can tell if somebody has risk factors or that they're developing Alzheimer's or dementia, possibly decades before they'd ever see symptoms. What we believe is the earlier we try medications or lifestyle interventions, the better outcomes that we will see. Like cancer. Just like cancer, early detection. Even though Alzheimer's is scary and, and it's understandable, somebody would say, well, I don't know if I want to know. You know, I don't want to know if I want to know if this is in my future. We want to change that mindset and say that just like cancer, if we can detect it early, we believe that we can slow down the progression in many cases and have this be something that can be managed. That's really the goal. As we wait for new medications in the pipeline, and there are new medications being tested that will look at inflammation, getting rid of the plaques, and a combinational approach. So there is a lot of hope on the horizon. Two questions. One is, I guess it's really important that we make time for sleep because that is something that if you could talk about the dirt and all that, because <laughs> that's something that is in our control in a way, right? That's such a good point is that we always want to leverage the things we have control over. Mm -hmm. And so there are aspects of this we don't have control over, but there's quite a bit we do have control over. So the things that we talked about, how you're eating, what we're learning and sleep is a big one. And so the reason sleep is so important is really two key things. And one is quite striking, and that is what you mentioned, this idea of this buildup of garbage or waste or trash. So essentially, a big breakthrough in brain science has been that, I'll go back one step, is we knew that the brain made waste. We knew it made garbage. We knew that just part of being alive, in fact, just to put in perspective, your brain's about three pounds. Every year you make five pounds of waste, of garbage, of trash, just by being alive. But we could never figure out where it went, how we got rid of it. And then there was this major breakthrough that tonight when you go to sleep, your brain's going to actually shrink down and squeeze like a sponge all of the garbage out. And it's going to squeeze it out into empty space because your brain's now smaller in your skull, which is kind of bizarre to think about. But it's squeezing all this garbage out. Imagine it flowing into this empty space in your brain and your skull. And then fluid comes up from your spinal cord and washes all this trash away. So every single night while you're asleep, you give your brain a squeeze and a wash and you get rid of all this trash. And Alzheimer's, many forms of dementia, Parkinson's, at their essence, they're the buildup of this waste. That's part of what's happening in these diseases. So we realize that sleep is just absolutely critical because we want to wash that trash away every single night. And the reason it's important, right, to have a good sleep regimen, and I'm asking this is that the janitors or the squeezing stuff can't manage the buildup of 30 days, right? They're only there for X amount of hours. That's exactly right. <laughs> so that what you're highlighting is this idea that I'll make it up on the weekend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what we're seeing is that in many cases, that chronic state is really bad for the brain. It's very difficult to catch up once the buildup takes place. Most people don't have a great night's sleep every night. That's the reality. But the more nights that we can try to have a good night's sleep and we can make this a priority, the better. I'm not aiming for perfection, 
but just saying that this is just something we want to realize is important. And the old idea of, you know, it's a badge of honor, <laughs> you know, not to sleep instead of that saying, no, this is a priority. This is something we're protecting our brain every day. And if you wake up and you kind of didn't get a good night's sleep and you have that kind of foggy, fuzzy feeling at its essence, that's that buildup of trash that we didn't release and get rid of that night. So we really want to each day try to get rid of as much as we can. And that really has an impact down the road. And what you're saying is everything matters. So if I'm eating correctly, and if I maybe miss a couple nights of sleep for some reason or another, right, it won't be devastating, but bad diet, no sleep, stress. It's that whole thing. Gotcha. It's kind of like leveraging. And someone else I was discussing recently said, it's like compound interest. It might not be noticeable day to day, but when you look back and you think about all these little habits that add up over time, it's about most days trying to get a good night's sleep, most meals trying to eat this way. Not every, you know, we want to live, we want to have fun and we want to do things, but most days getting in 30 minutes of walking. Can we get in 30 minutes of walking a day? doesn't have to all be done at the same time. Most meals, can we throw some fruits and vegetables on our plate? Always think about what we can add in, not what we're just taking away. And also thinking about, oh, I really do need to get this sleep. I don't have to feel guilty. I really need this sleep and I don't have to feel like I'm not working hard enough. Like we will work harder tomorrow if we get a good night's sleep. People often ask how many hours is a good night's sleep? What do you think about that? And how do you feel about sleep aids? The study suggests that anywhere between seven and nine hours of sleep is optimal for most people. Now, past nine as adults, so kids can sleep quite a bit more, but as adults, more than nine hours, we start to get concerned that that might increase risk for things like depression. There is something essentially as too much sleep less than seven, there are people out there that can sleep less than seven and they're just fine. They actually have certain genetics. They're called short sleepers, but they're very, very rare. So you want to make sure that if you're sleeping less than seven, that you're passing every physical test, every cognitive test, and you're not just kind of plowing through. If someone is sleeping less than seven and they're physically and mentally great, then that's fine. But for most people, somewhere between seven and nine, the idea is trying to get that most days of the week. In terms of the sleep aids, it's very similar to all supplements. We want to be really careful. They're not regulated by the FDA. There's some concerns about what's actually in those supplements. There's concerns about how effective they are, how they can throw off certain aspects of our brain health. For example, melatonin, that can be used under the care of a physician. There is some concern about people just grabbing it and using it and saying, I'm just going to use it to help me sleep. There's concerns about how it impacts the brain, especially in the long term. What we really do know that seems to be more beneficial than the supplements is actually getting natural light in the morning. So something as simple as soon after waking up, getting outside and getting some fresh air, walking outside, even on a cloudy day for about 10 minutes is something that's been shown to be based upon some really interesting brain science to really help you sleep that night. It actually helps shut off melatonin. It helps wake up the brain. It helps a whole host of factors, including optimizing our metabolism, our mood. And in the last year and a half, you know, a lot of people have been home a lot more. They haven't been commuting. They haven't been going outside. We see sleep quality has gone down. And we believe part of that is just missing out on that morning light. So before we turn to those supplements, they can be useful under the care of a physician in some cases. We really want to optimize things like making sure we're getting the morning light and other aspects that we really have a lot of data about. What about coffee? How do you feel about using coffee to wake you up? So coffee might actually have some brain health benefits. It's not something we're at the point where we would say people need to start drinking coffee for their brain health. But (laughs) if people enjoy a moderate amount of coffee, 
there's some interesting data that might be beneficial to the brain. Coffee can have antioxidants in it, which might help lessen inflammation. The key thing is keeping it moderate, not going past, you know, I think the number is somewhere around five or six cups a day is where we get to see it's, it's too much. And mm-hmm. that can be actually quite dangerous for the amounts of caffeine that can impact our heart health. But in terms of sleeping, what we want to be aware of is that from some people, caffeine has a very long half-life. It stays in the body a long time. So if you're having any trouble sleeping, you might want to think about cutting off your caffeine around lunchtime. It stays in our system for quite a long time. On the other hand, there's people who can down a espresso right before bed and they fall right asleep <laughs> and they have right. just different receptors in their brain. So there's an individualized aspect to this, but if you're having trouble sleeping, coffee is something on the list to investigate and push it earlier in the day. Dora and I were so excited when we listened to you talk about happiness mm-hmm. and just thought maybe you could spend a few minutes talking about the importance of that. And you said earlier, make sure you're having some fun. So if you can talk about the importance of that to brain health. I'm actually working on my book right now, and that's the chapter I just finished. (laughs) So there's all these really fascinating studies about how important happiness is for our brain health and for our physical health. It's great to be happy, but does it really matter? And now we realize that it has a profound impact on the amounts of hormones that are released into our body that are either damaging or beneficial. What's happening in our mind impacts our health, it impacts our genes. If we're happy, lowers the risk of a whole host of conditions. People recover better from heart attacks, from strokes, if they're in better moods. And so we really take this a lot more seriously now. We want to say that we want to be aware of how do we intervene. We're living in a world where we can easily go down roads where we can be less happy and we can be focused on things that bring us a lot of anger and stress. And that's understandable. So perspective is important carving out time in the day to spend time, to focus on pursuits that make us happy, being in the present moment, finding a sense of acceptance to the present moment is important. I just happened to see this study and they talked about friends and family. Who makes you happier, your friends or your family? I'll just ask, who do you think made people happier, their friends or their family? Well, you're talking to two sister-in-laws who are very good (laughs) friends. So we're both, but I don't know. Trisha, what do you think? I'm guessing probably friends just because you choose your friends. I mean, in the big, I don't know. Oh yeah. Good one. I'm trying to use my brain, you know, (laughs) is this a trick question? I have to be careful, you know, because I know my family is going to listen to this. We love our families, but what they found was that people had more happiness when they were around their friends. When they looked deeper into the data, what they found was with their friends, they did fun things with their family, especially the people they live with. Oh yeah, we're working. (laughs) Yeah, it was like laundry and to-do lists and going through the mail. We tend to check things off on the to-do list as opposed to saying, no, like we need to have the same fun with the people we live with, with the people we don't live with. And so just thinking about that, I think is sometimes these little things can have a really big impact. We think about, oh, wait a second, I need to make sure that my whole day with my family isn't just We don't call up our friends and say, come over and let's go through the junk mail together. Let's say those things. So we want to make sure that we're carving out time. I think that kind of goes back to what you were saying too. Initially, the loneliness factor, being able to have friends that you can connect with, friends that you can talk to, because sometimes you can be lonely in a group of people. These studies have shown it's not the number of people. It's not having the most followers or Facebook friends or, you know, social media friends. It's not about being in a big crowd of people. It's about connecting and feeling close to one person or two people, just a couple people and making that relationship meaningful, doing things that are of purpose and of value and fun, things like that. You know, if somebody wants to be tested for Alzheimer's, do you say to your doctor, I want the blood test or what do you 
dude to find out if you have the gene or whatever? Tell us what the steps are. The blood tests are on their way. They're very close to being available clinically. So somebody could just have them. They're not quite there yet, but they're very close. In terms of a diagnosis, it's everything from having a thorough evaluation by a neurologist who asks questions, talks about family history, talks about what the person is experiencing. On top of that, it's also some testing that's done, some cognitive testing. And then also a brain scan can be very important as well. So looking at what's actually happening in the brain, using those factors together are the ways in which a diagnosis is made. If you're feeling like you're forgetting things, is that sort of the first clue or is it just a bunch of different things? So as we get older, it's normal, especially if we're distracted. So if we're doing two things at the same time, we're looking at a screen and then going from a screen to a screen. And then we're like, oh, what was I just thinking about? That's actually quite normal. And so really just slowing down, focusing on one thing at a time actually is really helpful in those types of memory issues. I should say, or like, you know, where did I put my keys? I can't remember where I parked my car in this parking lot. Slowing down and just taking an extra second and saying, I need to take a moment and really think about where I parked my car. A lot of those memory issues, people are surprised they start to get a lot better. But a big warning sign is that if memory loss is getting significantly worse, it's really interfering with day-to-day life. If things that we really knew all of a sudden we're having trouble with. So for example, we always drove to a certain person's house or we always went to the store and all of a sudden we can't remember how to get there or we're lost. That happening once or twice is not as big of a concern as it getting worse, it progressing. But really the message is, is that any changes in memory, we want to talk to a neurologist, seek out help, or just talk to a general internist because we want to just check in on how's our heart health? How's our gut health? How are we sleeping? How are we managing our stress? We don't want to jump necessarily immediately to dementia and Alzheimer's. We just want to say that our brain health is important at any age. Are we getting enough sleep? Are we managing our stress? Because those little changes can have a big impact and not being afraid to have that conversation because we do see that when people start to optimize those factors, they say, oh, I'm actually, in many cases, I'm doing better. And if things are going in the direction of dementia or Alzheimer's, again, we want to know early so that we can make actionable steps. Tell us what you're doing next. I think you said you're writing a book. Yeah. Share with us and our listeners what they need to know about you. Oh, that, that's nice. Um, so yes, I'm working on a book that's coming out in 2022, and it's going to be talking about all these things that we can do to lower our risk of dementia, but keeping our brain strong and healthy every day. So more in depth about, well, how can we actually optimize our sleep? What are all the steps? You know, we talked about some of them, but, you know, going into more depth on each of these factors and having some actionable plans for them. My website is a great place for people to follow what I'm doing, which is just my name, drmarkmilstein.com. I try to do about a once a month online presentation virtual, and then I travel quite a bit, or I was traveling quite a bit, and we're hopefully getting back to that for in-person seminars and presentations, and just trying to get this information out to people so that they can use it and they can pass it on to their friends and their family. And I try to put out a once a month or once every few weeks newsletter on here's the latest research and here's how we can use it. So Dr. Milstein, thank you for joining us today. It's been just such a pleasure and we are so happy to share all this information with people. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed speaking with you both. Thank you for joining us on HealthGig. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. I'm Trisha. And I'm Doro. Be well.